Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contained high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England, not sheep. We trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 465. Words like seems, might, could, possibly, I think, in my opinion, are all examples uh, of hedges. And I'm not saying hedges are always bad, but we often use them just like disfluencies, just like fillers. We say them because they're easy ways to buy us time. But unfortunately, they have a pretty negative impact. Almost everything we do involves words. Words are how we persuade, communicate, and connect. They're how leaders lead, salespeople sell, and parents parent. But certain words are more impactful than others. They're better at changing minds, engaging audiences, and driving action. What are these magic words, and how can we take advantage of their power? Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is an absolute must. As you no doubt know if you've listened for any length of time, Most weeks, we welcome in a successful and inspiring author. Sometimes the not-so-successful and not-so... No, I'm kidding. Sometimes I do solo episodes. But this is a week where we're welcoming another author. And I'm excited to say that this is an author whose book I've been highly anticipating. Going back to that first episode of this year, remember where I highlighted the six books I'm most looking forward to in the first half of 2023? Well, about a month or so ago, we had the first of those six books and its author on the show. That was... Dr. Gloria Mark and her book, Attention Span. The second book on that list was a book called Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way by Jonah Berger. And I'm excited to let you know that he is indeed our guest on today's episode. I'll be asking Jonah to share about what it looks like in practice to turn actions into identities and why that matters, how changing a single word within your vocabulary can invite divergent thinking into your decision process, some of the advantages to asking questions, and how to know which questions are the right questions to ask, and lots, lots more. If I gave you one guess as to what I did over the weekend, you probably would guess 
correctly, especially if you've been listening to the show the last six months or so. I added another book summary to our library of written book summaries inside the Read to Lead community online. That's what I spent my weekend doing. The book I added was The Power of Habit. This was a specific book summary requested by members of the community. It now joins Tiny Habits and Atomic Habits in our Habits category When you join the Read to Lead community online, you get access, among other things, to those free business book summaries every single week. You can find out more about that, jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me. Jonah Berger is a Wharton School professor and internationally best-selling author of Contagious, a book he came on this show nearly 10 years ago to talk about, also Invisible Influence and The Catalyst. He's a world-renowned expert on natural language processing, change, word of mouth, influence, consumer behavior, and why things catch on. He's published over 80 articles in top-tier academic journals, teaches one of the world's most popular online courses, and popular outlets like the New York Times and Harvard Business Review often cover his work. He has keynoted hundreds of major conferences and events like South by Southwest, advises various early-stage companies, and consults for organizations like Apple, Google, Nike, Amazon, GE, Moderna, and the Gates Foundation. His latest book, Out Today, is called Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. Well, Jonah, it is a delight to have you back here. Uh, So first of all, thank you for coming back after having been here once. Some people prefer not to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank thank you for having me back. It was great the first time, and I'm, I'm happy to be here again. It's been hard to believe almost 10 years. You were one of those handful of people at the outset who said yes to being on a podcast that hadn't yet launched. Uh, I think you were guest number six or something like oh, that. Oh, wow. And I didn't realize that. You kind of were there at the very beginning, and, and I really appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. Well, no problem. Thank you. I, I feel special for being one of the early ones. It's <laughs> like I'm, I'm a limited edition, one of the first, uh, one of the first few. So I, I appreciate that as well. Now, the, the, the part where I failed is is not having you back on in the two books that came out in between that first one and the one we're talking about today. So I take full responsibility uh, for that, but better late uh, than never. And I'm so excited to be talking about this one because I'm getting a lot out of this book and a message that, that I want to convince more people of, knowledge workers in particular, and that I've been, I think, preaching for that entire 10 years is you are a writer. You are a speaker, whether you realize it or not. For years, I would ask every guest about advice on speaking. Uh, Last year, I started a note-making mastery cohort, which does a couple of things. It helps people get a better handle on the notes they take, on the content they consume, so they can become better writers in the process. Uh, Make an argument, Jonah, for why you feel likewise. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I always bristle at, at titles. So I, I don't think of myself as a writer. I don't, I don't think of myself as a speaker. But, but in writing this book, I, I realized, I mean, we're, we are all writers, right? Mm. Whether we sit down and force ourselves to write a full book, whether we write an essay, whether we write an article in the newspaper, or whether we just write emails, whether we write PowerPoint presentations, whether we write reports, we are all writing things all the time. Similarly, we're all speakers. We not get up on a stage in front of millions of people, but we are talking in meetings. Uh, we are talking to colleagues. We are talking to spouses. We are talking to children. We are constantly u- using language, whether it's to try to convince clients or uh, send those emails, whether it's to pull together presentations or uh, talk to family members. And while we spend a lot of time thinking about what we want to communicate, the topics we want to talk about, we spend a 
lot less time thinking about the specific words we use when communicating those ideas. Um, you know, if I, I'm getting up in there in a meeting, I'm saying, okay, I want everybody to support this initiative. So I've got to tell them the reasons why it's a great, uh, great idea. While we think there, we think a lot less about the individual words. And unfortunately, that's a mistake because mm. small shifts, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, in the language you use can have a big impact on our success. And so the book is all about, you know, what are these specific words, phrases, and types of language um, uh, that increase our impact in a variety of areas and how, by understanding how they work, can we uh, be, become better uh, both, both at home and at work? Yeah, we will dig into some of that for sure. And, and it's really in my wheelhouse. So one of the things I've done the last 10 years uh, as a podcaster and having done broadcasting before this is train other podcasters, teach people how to launch a podcast and hopefully how to do it well. And one of the things I hone in on, especially for interviews, interviewers, is, is word choice and how powerful that can be. You're well respected for uh, your research. Talk about how it is we know what we know about language. Where, where do these insights on language come from ultimately? Yeah, you know, this is not the first book uh, ever to talk about language, but there are a lot of books out there, and some of them are, are good and some less so, that are about people's opinions. Um, uh, you know, uh, folks have opinions about certain words or phrases, never say this, always say this, and those sorts of things. That's me. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not smart enough to have opinions. Um, and so I, I just look at data. That's, that's, all right. I, that's all I can do. And, and, you know, language isn't new. We, we've been talking, we've been writing. Uh, for a long time, thousands of years. Mm. What is new now, though, is that so much of this language that we and others produce is captured in some way, shape, or form, right? You and I are talking right now um, uh, using our voices, but at the end of this, the system might spit out a transcription, or at least there's a recording, there may be a transcription. Mm. Um, people share their attitudes and opinions uh, online, on social media, they talk to colleagues at work or for email, um, uh, you know, uh, the repositories now of millions of resumes that people have submitted um, to different online sites. There's online content that's been written that we can get the text of and look at how far down an article people read. And so one, there, there's all this data that, that's out there now that didn't used to be there before. But then second, there's all these new tools to analyze this, this data. And whether you want to call it natural language processing, whether you want to call it automated text analysis, um, there are many more tools that have, have come online in the past 10 or so years that allow us to parse all this language data, right? It used to be if I wanted to figure out, oh, what, what makes a certain sales pitch more effective? Maybe I'd listen to 10 of them myself um, and you know share some thoughts or maybe even personally rate them on some dimensions. But it'd take a long time to rate 100 sales pitches, 1,000 sales pitches, 10,000 sales pitches, We've analyzed thousands of pieces, tens of thousands of pieces of online content to look at how the language that content uses affects whether that content holds people's attention. We've analyzed hundreds of conversations to look at the language people use and, and the outcome. We've analyzed sales pitches and a variety of other types of language because these tools uh, exist. And so just like the telescope revolutionized um, our study of uh, outer space and the stars, just like a microscope has revolutionized our study uh, of chemistry, um, so too these uh, automated tools have revolutionized our understanding of language. And so again, the language, we've been doing all this all the time, but now we can uncover some really exciting insights about how we can use language better. 
And I like how the book is laid out quite methodically in these six different types of, of magic words. You dedicate a chapter to each of these, activate identity and, and agency, convey confidence, uh, ask the right questions, leverage concreteness, employ emotion, and harness similarity and difference. I want to start with something you talk about in that first chapter. What does it look like to practice turning actions into identities? What impact does this have on, on not only perceptions, but also behaviors? Yeah, and let me say one one quick thing. So um, the book is organized from sort of easier language features to more complicated mm-hmm. language features. Um, but uh, if you're playing along with Scrabble, you can reorganize the letters, and do a little <laughs> bit of cheating here and there to spell the word speak. Um, and so often when I present this framework, I talk about how we can speak more effectively. And that's S-P-E-A-C-C, has two C's rather than K. Uh, as someone nicely pointed out, K is the hard letter in Scrabble to do, so I feel less bad. But, but the S is, as you said, the language of similarity and difference. The P is the language of posing questions. E is the language of motion. A is the language of agency and identity. One of the C's is confidence and, and one is concreteness. And so to dive into, as you talked about, sort of the language of, of agency and identity, one example uh, I think is really powerful. You know, often we want to get other people to do something. Uh, we need their help. And so we ask them for help. Or if we work for a nonprofit that's trying to turn out the vote, we're asking them to go vote. Um, and sometimes they do what we want and sometimes they don't. And so could language help us increase our influence, make people more likely to do what, what we'd like them to do? And so a number of years ago at Stanford University, um, they went to a local elementary and they asked four or five-year-olds to help clean up. Messy classroom, crayons on the ground, there's um, blocks everywhere, books everywhere. They asked the students to help clean up. And there's like we all the time, students don't necessarily want to, to clean up. Um, they know they should, <laughs> but they don't necessarily want to. And so for some students, um, uh, they ask, hey, can you help clean up? And for other students, they take the same exact language, but they add just two letters at the end. Can you be a helper and, and clean up? Now, the difference between help and helper is infinitesimal. Right? It's the same word, but just two letters uh, at the end. Let those two letters made a really big difference. It led to about a 30% increase in the portion uh, of children that agreed to help. And it's not just kids in classrooms. Um, similar effects have been found with uh, a variety of other domains. Take voting, for example. Um, uh, they looked at uh, individuals who were considering to vote. For some of those individuals, they said, hey, uh, please go vote. Um, and others, they said, hey, please be a voter. Uh, and again, the difference between vote and, and voter is even smaller. Now it's only one letter, adding an R to the end of vote. Mm-hmm. Yet it increases the percentage of people that vote by about 15%. And so you might sit there going, this is a neat parlor trick, but, but how's it working, right? And, and is this a more general idea? And the more general idea is what I call turning a- actions into identities. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, often people ask us to take an action, right? Uh, can you help? Can you vote? Um, can you do whatever? Can you uh, lead a little bit? Or can you do whatever, uh, you know, come up with more innovative solutions, whatever it might be? And so often people ask us to do those things. We're busy. We don't always have the time, but we care a lot about how we see ourselves, what identities we, we hold. We want to see ourselves as smart and competent uh, and uh, at least a little bit athletic, at least a little bit attractive and whatever other dimensions we care about. And so if actions allow us to see ourselves as holding desired identities, much more likely to want to take those actions in the first place. And so helping, sure, if I'm a kid, I know that I should help. But if helping is an opportunity to see myself as a helper, to be a helper, well, now I'm much more to do it. If if voting is an opportunity to be a voter, this desirable identity, I'm more likely to take the action so that I can see myself as holding that desirable identity. And the same thing is actually true on, on the flip side. 
So take negative things, right? Losing is bad. That's uh, uh, an action. But an identity being a loser is even worse. <laughs> cheating on a test, sure, cheating is bad. But being a cheater is even is even worse. And so research finds, hey, when you tell kids in a classroom that cheating would make them a cheater, they're much less likely to mm-hmm. cheat, right? Because now mm-hmm. cheating would show that they hold this negative identity. And it reminds me of that old famous campaign, don't be a litter bug, right? It does a really good job of taking a behavior and action, framing it in a negative way and, and making people less likely to do it. And, and just to add one more thing, you know, this isn't just about how we describe other people and persuade other people. Uh, let me tell you about two people I know. Someone uh, runs and the other person is a runner. Mm. If you had to guess, which of them do you think runs more often? The person who runs or the person who is a runner? The person who is a runner. Yeah, right? It seems like a stable part of their identity. If they are right. a runner, they must run a whole bunch. Mm. If I tell you I drink coffee, you think I drink coffee once in a while. If I say I'm a coffee drinker, you're like, oh, you, you drink coffee a lot. <laughs> and so identities are much more stable um, and they suggest something happens more frequently. Um, and so if, if someone says, hey, I'm hardworking on a resume, okay. If they're a hard worker, it suggests it's a stable part of who they are. YouTube and other platforms have done a great job. You know, now people aren't just creating content, they are creators, which seem like much more stable, persistent uh, identities. Um, you know, uh, and, and same thing with uh, leading versus being a leader. And so whether you want to describe yourself a certain way to encourage your own behavior or describe others a particular way to shape how people perceive them, we can use this difference between actions and identity to, to lead to more favorable perceptions as well. A friend of mine wrote a very popular ebook years ago. You may have heard of him or it uh, that put him on the map as a creator called You Are a Writer. <laughs> yeah. And, and that took off and, and he's written several books since as folks wanted to identify as that thing. Yes. You talked about small changes. I want to talk about maybe slightly larger change. I'm talking about actual full word changes versus just a couple of letters here. Uh, what about the power of changing a single word when making decisions to help invite divergent thinking to the process? I'm talking specifically here about uh, coulds versus, versus shoulds. Yeah. I found this research also really fascinating. And, and so often we're stuck on tough problems, right? We're mm. trying to write a certain paragraph. We're trying to reconcile two different things. We're trying to come up with a creative idea for a client. We're often sort of stuck in, in, in problem solving. And, and usually when we get stuck, we take a particular approach. We think about what we should do. We say, okay, you know, what, what should you do in this situation? What, what should the right answer be? And, and we sort of work towards, towards that goal. Um, but researchers wanted to see whether a subtle shift in language could make us more creative and help us reach better solutions. So they gave people a bunch of problems. And for some of those problems, they asked people to use the traditional approach. You know, think about what you should do. But for a second set of people, they took a very slightly different approach. They switched one word. They said, don't think about what you should do. Think about what you could do. And that shift is subtle, but it's really important, right? Because what, what should does is it focuses on, on kind of the right answer. There's one right answer. Let me put my blinders on and, and think about what's right. What, what should I be doing? Could opens up our, 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 our blinders a little bit. It encourages us to think more broadly, think about di- divergent ideas, um, different possibilities. And not surprisingly, as a result, leads us to come up with better solutions. And, and what I particularly like about could is sometimes people say, well, oh, the, some of the stuff you come up with when you think about what you could do, aren't things that you would actually want to implement. And I completely agree. Right? I'm not saying everything you come up with in that could process is a great solution. But, but the key notion is that by thinking about what you could do, by thinking beyond what you should do, but what you could do, you consider a broader set of things 
And as a result, you come up with, with a better solution. And so whether we're stuck ourselves or trying to help others get unstuck, this shift from should to could is a really simple and useful trick to, to move us in the right direction. In your chapter on conveying confidence, I, I had to cringe a little bit at myself despite the fact that I've one way or another earned a living behind a microphone for 35 plus years, <laughs> the ums and uhs and errs come out sometimes ad nauseum. If listeners knew how many of those get cut out before this gets published, they'd be shocked. <laughs> how, do, how do those weaken what's being said and not what should we do? What can we do instead? Yeah. So I want to take a, a step back a little bit and, and frame this this chapter as a whole because I, mm. I, I found it fascinating in many ways, troubling in some other ways, but mm. certainly interesting. So we all know people that are very charismatic, right? Like when they talk, other people listen. When they tell stories, other people stay tuned. Like they are great speakers and presenters. And as someone who's not that way myself, I often sit there going, what are they doing that, that works? Mm. Um, and so I've spent a little bit of time both thinking about this um, and, and uh, analyzing this. And, and one person in particular that people often uh, point to is, is uh, Donald Trump. Um, and mm. I don't want to get into politics here. Uh, whether your listeners like Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump, either one is, is fine with me. They're entitled to their opinion. But, but whether you like him or hate him, you can't deny that he's been a great salesman of his ideas. Mm. Whether you like those ideas or hate those ideas, <laughs> he's been really effective at getting other people to believe those ideas are true and support him in his desire to take action on them. And so why? Right? What, what does he do as a communicator that, that gets him there? Um, and if you look at his speeches, he's not the traditional sort of great orator. Uh, order that we, we think about. You know, when he was, um, I guess it was when he announced his original presidential campaign, he said something like the following, you know, I'm going to build a great wall. Nobody builds walls better than me. Believe me. And I built very inexpensively. Country's in serious trouble. We don't have victories anymore. We used to have victories. Now we don't. You know, when was the last time you saw us beating China in a trade deal? I beat China all the time. <laughs> and and so, so some people heard that and they said, what? Like it, feels a little bit incoherent. It's bluster. It's simplistic. You know, it, there's nothing there. Um, but a year later, he's elected president, right? Mm -hmm. And so even if you think what he just said is ridiculous, he's doing something that's working. What is it? And if you look closer, what, what he does is actually very similar to what famous startup founders do, uh, uh, very effective sales professionals do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you look at gurus, transformational leaders, they, they all do the same thing uh, that he does, which is they speak with a great deal uh, of certainty. Uh, and, and what do I mean by that? Th they speak like everything is obvious, definite, um, clear. Um, you know, that's, that's certainly the right way. Everyone would agree. Um, uh, it's definitely the case that you know, everyone knows this. They, they speak like it's just obvious. This is the way it is. Mm. Nobody could potentially disagree with that. And, and not surprisingly, that's somewhat effective, right? So, so research on financial advisors, for example, shows that people prefer advisors that use more certain language, even though those advisors aren't actually right more frequently. And even in some cases, they're overconfident. People still prefer certain advisors because when someone says something with so much certainty, it's hard not to believe that what they're saying is right. Right, because they so clearly believe it so strongly, mm. it's hard not to think, well, well, they must be correct. Mm. And contrast that, though, as, as you sort of let in with, with the way that most of us speak often, 
right? Mm. Um, we use, uh, as you said, lots of ums and uhs, fillers and disfluencies. Um, we also use a lot of hedges. I'm super guilty uh, of this. Um, you know, a consulting client will have me in and say, what do you think of this strategy? And I say, oh, you know, that might work. Or I think this is a good idea. <laughs> or, you know, it seems like that could be a, a good potential direction, right? Words like seems, might, could, possibly, I think, in my opinion, are all examples uh, of hedges. And, and I'm not saying hedges are always bad, but we often use them just like disfluencies, just like fillers as a sort of a crutch, right? When we fill conversational space, when we don't know what to say next, we say them because they're easy ways to buy us time as we're thinking about what to say. But unfortunately, they have a, a pretty negative impact. We've looked at hundreds of thousands of online reviews, a variety of different um, experimental contexts, and lots of work shows that when we hedge more often, people are less persuaded, right? They're less likely to follow our advice. They're less likely to do what we suggested doing because they think we're less confident. They're sitting there going, well, if you're not even certain or confident, why should I listen to what you suggested? And so I think this has a few implications. First, ditch the hedges. You know, if you mean to hedge, that's fine, but but don't do it um, unintentionally. Same with disfluencies, ums and uhs and um, likes. Uh, for example, some people use like as a way to catch a breath or think, can often be better just to pause, right? Um, uh, some of the great speakers uh, out there, you know, Obama does this a lot, others do it as well. They pause uh, both as a device to gain your attention, but also as an opportunity to think about what they want to say. I tend to speak too quickly, so I'm not a pauser, but I, I recognize it's a good strategy. And also, if, if you have to head, right, or there is some uncertainty, think about the right way to deal with it, right? Because sometimes there is uncertainty. And so, one way is just to own the uncertainty rather than saying, if someone says, oh, do you think this is a good strategy? You know, oh, you know, I'm not really sure whether this strategy is going to work. And that may be true. You may not be sure whether that strategy is going to work. But a different answer is, is, I think this is a great strategy. But for it to work, these three things need to happen. And notice the difference there. I sound really confident because that's actually how I feel. I am uncertain that the strategy will work, but I am certain that if we do these three things, it will work. Right? Mm. And, and so there's still some uncertainty there. We still have to go do those things, but I'm not couching it in a way that will make people less likely to listen. I've seen some of these things sort of play out anecdotally in in my work, uh, again, as a speaker and someone who has trained a fair amount of podcasters over the years and things I've learned in my time as a broadcaster that are counterintuitive. The more laser-like your focus, the broader your reach. When you get behind the microphone to do a podcast, you're never talking to more than one person and you need to approach it (laughs) that way as if you're talking to an individual. Very counterintuitive things that in other circles, in podcast circles, have gotten a lot of pushback. But I find that when I say those things, I say them so confidently that I tend to get (laughs) more more buy-in than than the average uh, uh, person. You talked a little bit about times where it might be appropriate to express doubt or, or be less confident. Those could be during, say, political conversations, right? Some of these volatile topics, maybe maybe you're perceived as much less of a threat, for example, when, when you're doing that, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I see when I write a book, or write a paper, things are always complicated. Rarely is it just always do this thing. This is always great. And so I try to make sure that I'm expressing what the thing is and when it works some way and, and when it works differently. And I, I want to be careful. I'm not suggesting that we should always speak with, with certainty, right? As, as you just alluded to, there's some, some nice research that shows, you know, particularly when we're in a conversation with someone else who might strongly disagree with our views, expressing a little bit of uncertainty in our own views is a great way to suggest that we're receptive to other people's opinions and can be beneficial in, in those types uh, of conversations. But, but certainty is like a, a tool, 
right? Sometimes you need a hammer. Sometimes you need a screwdriver. Sometimes you need a saw. Sometimes you need certainty, right? Um, sometimes certainty is best because you're trying to persuade someone. You only sort of have one shot. You know, they're not strongly disagreeing with you. They just aren't sure. And so that can be the right course of action. In other cases, a leader, for example, you know, um, there are cases where being really certain is good and there are cases where showing some uncertainty can be can be better. But if we don't even understand what certain language is, uh, what counts as certain, what counts as uncertain, and ways to express it, I think we can't use that tool effectively. I was talking to someone recently and they said, oh, you know, but couldn't certainty come off differently for different type of communicators? So let's say a younger mm-hmm. person in the office, if they seem too certain, couldn't that be a bad thing? And I said, yes and no, right? So if they come off as too confident because they're using kind of definites and they're not hedging ever, maybe. If they're getting rid of ums and uhs, I don't think getting rid of ums and uhs can be bad for anybody. <laughs> um, and so, you know, just because you don't seem overconfident, you just seem clear. You seem clear um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, more direct in what you're saying. Um, and so I think some of these are, you know, when to use them, but, but others are kind of helpful all the time. One of my favorite chapters is chapter three, a chapter on, on asking questions. Um, what are some of the advantages of asking questions, Jonah, to, to get what you want, if you will? And, and how can we be sure we're asking the right ones to begin with? I find questions fascinating. And, and I've learned a little bit uh, about questions from my last book, The Catalyst, um, and talk mm. about sort of asking questions as a way to reduce reactants. So, you know, often when we t- tell people what to do, they push back. But if we ask them a question, what's your opinion, or which of these two things do you like? Um, they feel like they participated more in the process. And so they're more excited about the outcome. Now we have to ask the right questions, but but they're powerful. And 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 we often think about questions as just ways to collect information. And, and sure, questions do that, but they also shape how we're perceived. They act like a spotlight to direct attention and guide conversation. They're they're really powerful linguistic device. And um, one way questions show up uh, is in is in asking for advice. We get stuck all the time. Um, we talked about some of this already, but you know we're dealing with a tough problem at the office or something at home that we're not sure about. We want to ask someone else for their advice, but we feel a little tentative. We don't want to bother them. Uh, we're not sure they'll know the answer. And even worse, if we ask them, maybe they'll think less of us, right? They'll think that we don't know the answer and, and that must mean we're not very smart or competent. And so you know, often we avoid asking for advice or we don't ask, we don't ask for advice. It turns out though that intuition is, is a bit misguided. So there's some very nice research done by some folks at, at Harvard and at Wharton where they had a variety of people have different interactions. In some cases people ask for advice, in other cases they don't. And they find that asking for advice doesn't make us seem less smart, less competent. In fact, just the opposite. It makes us seem more smarter and, and more competent. And the reason why is, is quite interesting. We're all egocentric. We all think that our advice is, is great. And so when someone comes along and asks us for our advice, we go, wow, they must be pretty smart because they were smart enough to ask me for my advice. They have good taste. Yeah. Right? They ask me for my advice. They clearly know who has great advice. They must be smart as well. And so not only does asking for advice let us get all that useful information, but it even makes us look better as, as a result. And, and that's just one example of questions, generally asking for advice. But there are other types of, of questions as, as well. Some, um, some researchers did some studies of social interactions, um, and they found that asking a certain type of question um, led people to like us. So whether it's in a work context or a speed dating context, certain types of questions lead us to be perceived more favorably, lead others to like us more, want to go on a second date, whatever it might be. And those aren't some of the questions we think about often. So Usually when we think about you know, good social interaction questions, we think about those beginning of the conversation interaction. How are you today? That's a question. 
But it doesn't really say much about the person who asked it, except that that person is, is moderately polite, right? They recognize social norms. Similarly, if, if someone asks what's called a reciprocal question, or somebody says, oh, uh, what are you having for lunch? I'm having da-da-da. What are you having back? That's a question. But again, it, it simply shows politeness. But there's this other type of questions called follow-ups um, uh, that uh, interviewers are, are great at. You, you've done a great job of this already, but um, that, are, that are quite impactful. And what follow-ups are is if someone says, oh, you know, I like that presentation a lot. Not just saying, I liked it too, but saying something like, interesting. What'd you like about it? Right? Following up on what the person said. Or suddenly someone says, I had a tough day at the office. Man, it was, it was a rough day. Not just saying, I'm so sorry, which does show that you care, but saying, I'm sorry to hear that. What, 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 was, what was particularly difficult? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is, is it shows people that you care, that you're responsive. Not only did you listen to what they said, but you heard what they said and you care enough to, to follow up. And so these types of questions lead other people to like us more because it, it seems like we're, we're more caring. And essentially, it makes us better listeners. It shows that we're, we're actually paying attention. And, and I, I think this broad area of kind of showing listening is, is fascinating. I talk about it in another area of the book as well. But, but too often, I think, you know, we're, we're told, okay, we should, we should listen, be a good listener. And so we're sitting there going, I am listening, I am listening, <laughs> I am listening. But it's not just about the listening, right? Mm-hmm. It's the act of, of hearing what someone else said. It's also about showing them that you heard them, right? Because you could be listening, but if they don't know that, it's not going to benefit the interaction to the same degree. And so it's not just about mm-hmm. doing the listening, it's about showing the listening as well. Mm-hmm. And, and follow-up questions are one type of thing that, that shows that listening. Over to concreteness, there are times when we want to make the abstract concrete and times when communicating in an abstract way is actually, is actually better. Maybe share a couple of examples of, of, of those two sort of in real life, what that would look like. Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll frame the concreteness discussion by, by telling a little bit of a story maybe. And so a number of years ago, I was working with a consulting client in, in Dallas. I was on my way back to the airport to fly home to see my family. I get the, the text message that all travelers dread, you know, your, your flight has been delayed. You know, you're not going to make it anymore. So, you know, you should rebook on something else, whatever it might be. And so I call customer service, frustrated um, as people often are, I have a 10-minute interaction with them, doesn't go very well. I get off the phone. The very nice Uber driver goes, oh, you know, it looks like you had a you had a tough call with customer service. And I go, yeah, it's a really tough job. I don't know how anybody does this, right? All they do all day is listen to difficult, upset people like me and, and have to deal with it. And he said, well, my, my daughter actually works in, in customer service and, and she likes it a lot. And, and not only does she like it, but she does such a good job that now they have her train others about how to do it effectively. And the, the social scientist in me is sitting going, well, what, what does she do? <laughs> what, is, what does she do that makes her so effective? Because yeah. you know, obviously, we, we want the customer service people to fix the flight, find our bag, fix our problem, solve, mm. maybe give us a, a money back or something, whatever it is. But beyond that, do the words actually matter? And so we did this big study um, uh, with an airline, with an online retailer, looking at the language of customer service and how it affects both satisfaction uh, and subsequent purchase from the company. And we found it's quite interesting, controlling for solving the problem and all these other things. A particular type of language both increases customer satisfaction and makes people more likely to buy from the brand in the future. And that's this idea of, of concrete language or linguistic concreteness. And, and what does that mean? Well, some things are more concrete than others. A table, a chair, uh, water, a screen, um, trees, all of them you can touch, see, smell, look at. Uh, strategy, love, um, uh, all of those are, are 
more abstract things. You don't you don't necessarily have a concrete sense of them. Hmm. Um, and so uh, it turns out that using concrete language increases customer satisfaction. And what does that mean? Well, you can talk to customer service, say, oh, man, I just, you know, I, I, my flight was delayed. I need to be rebooked from this place to that place. And they can say, sure, I can help you with that. And that's relatively abstract. Or they can say more, I'd be, I'd be happy to rebook you from this city to this city. Or um, if somebody says they need whatever it is, a, a refund saying, your money will be there tomorrow is much more concrete than a refund will be there soon. Mm. Like tomorrow, I at least have a sense of when it's going to occur soon. When is that? Right. A refund, that's really abstract. Money is much more. Uh, and so concrete language is, is quite beneficial. Again, as we talked about a little bit already, because it makes people feel like you're listening, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you can be, not only are you just saying the same thing to every single person that calls, I can help you with that, I can help you with that, I can help you with that. But you listen to the specific thing I said, you heard it, and you're going to take action based on it. And so for those reasons, it, it increases uh, satisfaction. It's true in a, a variety of domains as well. Got a couple of questions, Jonah. In the time we have left, I want to ask you not directly related to the book. Before I do that, though, we've covered a little more than half the book at this point. What have I not asked about maybe that you want to make sure people know about and walk away with? I think the only thing I want to make sure people walk away with is is the, the big picture. I mean, hardly a minute goes by when we're not using language when we're not writing, when we're not speaking, when we're not reading someone else's language. Even our private thoughts rely on language. And yet, while we spend all this time creating and consuming language, we don't think a lot about the specific words we use. And there's a big opportunity there, whether we're trying to convince clients, whether we're trying to captivate an audience's attention, whether we're trying to connect with loved ones. By using language in the right way, we can increase our impact. I want to ask you a question related to personal knowledge management, maybe some of your advice or tips there. I mentioned this note-making mastery cohort that I started last year, uh, walking students through the process of of better collection, better connection and organization of their notes, better crystallizing and distilling their notes so they can then create from their notes on on the content they consume, the things that they learn. As an avid researcher, I'd love to know what some of your processes are for just organizing all that stuff, whether it's leveraging AI or a certain app or other processes that you may use to just keep sense of it all. I would say there's there's two things. There's one, recording the ideas you have, and then second, organizing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the recording part, I love voice to text. Um, uh, whether I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm sending myself emails all the time uh, on, <laughs> on the weekend. I'm just, you know, I have a thought, I'm out on Friday night at dinner, I pop open, you know, an email to myself and I dictate my, my thoughts. And sometimes I come back to those thoughts and I go, those were terrible. I don't know why I thought they were <laughs> worth recording. And other times I go, oh, it's interesting. And, and I file it away somewhere. Um, because I think we have this notion that we'll think about it later, and we, we don't always. Um, you know, I, I teach the core at the Wharton School to most of our incoming MBAs, and that's focused in September, October. But I come across great marketing examples in January and March and other times of year, and I want to make sure to store them in the right place. And so not only do I make sure to capture them, but then I have systems for storing them, right? I have a, an email reminder that pops up in July that has all my ideas for the core for this year, for teaching. Um, uh, you know, For book stuff, I have a folder. I'm, I'm a maniac with folders. I do love <laughs> folders, but I think they really help you organize things. And so maybe you never come back to those ideas, but at least if you do, you know where to find them. And so good mm-hmm. organization, good folders. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are better tools to do it, but uh, you know, I, I find Microsoft Word or Microsoft Outlook to be just fine. But making sure to 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 know where to find the stuff is is important. As I survey people coming into the cohort, the biggest sore point is organization for sure. Yeah. In the last ten years since we've last spoken, I, I I believe it's probably safe to assume you've you've done as I have a fair amount of reading. 
Uh, and I know, I, or at least I think I probably asked you when uh, you were here that first time, what books had impacted you up to that point. I'm asking this question again, really thinking about the last 10 years. Uh, what yeah. have you read that's, that's impacted you in a powerful way, a book or two that, that you might recommend? You know, it, it's so hard. There's so many great books out there. Um, uh, and so I, I, uh, I don't want to say some and not say others. You know, I, I love everything by uh, Dan Pink or Charles Duhigg or the Heath mm-hmm. Brothers. Um, Adam Grant has great stuff. Dan Ariely has great stuff. Um, there, there's so many wonderful, wonderful books out there. Um, and, and my favorite thing is, you know, I have a book and just have these pages folded over and these notes here. And, yeah. um, but, but I also think sometimes people feel like only new books are good. And there's also lots of really old books that are good. There's an an old book called micro motives and macro behaviors about how what we do shapes what other Mm -hmm. people do, which shapes what other people do in the future. And it's a great, great book by Thomas Schelling. There's a a famous book called diffusion of innovations by a guy named Everett Rogers that I go back to again and again. And so, you know, both the Mm -hmm. new stuff and, and the classics. I totally agree. That's something I talked about in my online community. I'm a real big fan of not reading what everybody else is reading today and what's <laughs> popular necessarily, yeah. uh, your book being the exception. But there are certainly books 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old that maybe you haven't read or you haven't read in a while that are certainly uh, worth picking up. Well, uh, Jonah's book, again, is called Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. It officially releases the day this episode is being released, March the 7th. Go pick it up right now at your favorite book retailer. Jonah, thank you so much for being here and and coming back again on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You know what? Jonah and I have a lot in common. Dan Pink, Charles Duhigg, the Heath brothers, Dan and Chip, Dan Ariely, Adam Grant. I could read their books all day long. I'll put links to each of those authors on the show notes page for this episode, along with the other links and resources pertinent to our conversation. You can find all of that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 465 for episode 465. Speaking of one of those authors Jonah mentioned, Charles Duhigg, his book, The Power of Habit, is the most recent book summary edition inside the Read to Lead community. One of the many perks you get for being a member of our community. I hope you'll join over 330 others in the short time since the community has existed that have jumped in and are interacting with one another and and rubbing shoulders with folks who are as serious about personal and professional development as they are. You can join those ranks. We'd love to have you. Just go to jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me. That wraps it up for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.